So the next two weeks, um, I want to talk about uh, spiritual warfare. And um, this is something that I've spoke about in Philly, and I just kind of went over my notes. And you know what's so interesting? I had this thought to talk about spiritual warfare. And I was just looking at some notes I had taken, and I noticed that I preached on the same exact theme the same exact weekend in October in Philadelphia. <clears throat> My wife and I were talking about how <clears throat> sometimes we can really sense like warfare in the fall. I don't know about you guys. You guys sense warfare sometimes in the fall, fall season? Um, and sometimes we um, can experience this at certain times of the year because of just where people at, usually around the holidays, December and January, people really struggle with uh, depression. They struggle with just a lot of deep emotions because of the holidays. Uh, and they're not really able to spend the holidays with people that are really important to them. And so they struggle. But I think in the fall, there's just this unique time when there's a lot of like atmospheric things that just really can come out of believer. And I just want to just for a couple minutes um, just share this, a few thoughts. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verse, and we'll just start with verse 3. And, um, and it says this, For though we walk in the flesh, and I'm reading from the New King James Version because um, somebody asked me the other day, why do we use New King James and not anything else? Because in short, I like the texts, the manuscripts uh, that are used in the New King James and in the King James. And um, some of the new, new version, newer versions or other versions, there are some texts that have, like the Nestle and Arlen texts, have more of a Gnostic approach. And sometimes you can see the translation uh, can sometimes even... Uh, impact the message of grace in the Bible. So I like the King James and I like the New King James. I'm not a King James only person, but I just chosen to use this text. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 through 5, it says, For we walk in the flesh. And can you see this okay on the screen? Yeah, great. Right. Okay. For we walk, for though we walk in the flesh, and I'm reading this actually now from the Amplified, in human bodies in the natural realm in this world, we do not war according to the flesh. We do not fight our battles in human strength. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations, false doctrines, and theories. And every arrogant thought that raised up against the knowledge or the doctrine of God, and we are taking every thought captive or make every thought surrender to obedience to Christ. And when we look at warfare, um, there are just two things that we have to start off with, and that God has given you and I as believers the victory. And this, the victory that God has given us is twofold. God has given us a strategic victory, and God has also given us a tactical victory. And I want to go over that in a, in a, in, in a, uh, in a short paragraph here that in the military sense, strategy is defined as the science and the art of military command to meet the enemy in combat under advantageous conditions. So in other words, in any war, that 
There must be a plan and a method designed to defeat the enemy. So we bring this to the spiritual realm. We can see it that God's strategy is found in the divine power and the and the assets, the equipment that he's prepared for us, the believers in eternity past. That in eternity past, God settled the issue of the believer's victory. Before the foundation of the earth, the lamb was was designated and was volunteered to be slain as the, as the slain lamb. And I love that because even before mankind in this world had a chance to mess things up, God had already defined the terms of the relationship of salvation. Isn't that beautiful? This is, the, this is where spiritual warfare begins. And so two things. What's our, strate- what's our strategic and our tactical victory? Well, number one, the strategic victory over the, over the devil in angelic conflicts happened when Jesus Christ in his first advent died on the cross and stated in John 19 verse 30, it is finished. That's the strategic victory that you and I have over the devil through the cross of Jesus Christ. Strategies refer to the finished work method and the pre-designed plan of God based on grace. And so our strategic victory today and every day that we wake up over the devil is that there, that on the cross, Jesus Christ defeated sin in the form of sinful flesh was crucified and rose on the third day. And that is our strategic victory today. The strategic victory is not that I'm a good person, that I'm doing very well in my behavior, that I'm scoring big kudos with God because I'm doing things for God. But our strategic victory is really through the cross of Jesus Christ. That is why we are invited, we are commanded by Jesus Christ to take up our cross daily. We have a personal cross. And this is really the doctrine that we've been brought up on, isn't it? This is what we've been brought up on in our Christianity. The tactical victory, so the strategic victory, our stri- we have a strategic advantage over the devil, and that's the cross. And when we take up our cross and live in a daily crucifixion, in a finished work, then we have a strategic, we are able to live in a strategic victory over the devil. And I just think that this is so important because when we think about what we're doing here, you know, I know all of us, have people that we're just ministering to on just different personal levels, you know, uh, people that we're that God has brought across our path. You know, Wednesday night we were talking at the Bible study that really our strategy, our goal right now in um, in our ministry here is really just to pick out two or three people, and for the next two or three months, really just pray for them, minister to them, uh, call them up. And just disciple them with a goal in our with our prayer goal that we would just uh, introduce them to Jesus Christ, and let's just all pray together for that. You know, as we think about what we're doing here, and this is our strategic victory. That this is not being done from a perspective that God will like me more, but it's based on the fact that our strategic victory is that Jesus Christ paid for all of our sin on the cross and rose from the dead. The second victory that we have is a tactical victory. And this is really like, um, this is really where, where the rubber meets the road. Um, tactical refers to putting into operation by faith what Jesus has done. Okay, so our strategic victory is that Jesus paid for our sins 
They're on the cross. We have been separated from our sin. Um, our sins have been are as far away from us as, as the east is from the west. Um, so what does that mean for me today? What does that mean for me tomorrow, Monday morning, when I got to wake up and get the kids out the door, when I got to go to work, or you know, when I got to face those complicated relationships or face my own issues in my own life? What does that mean, the strategic victory? Well, this has to be part of our tactics, and that means that I take that by faith in my life and I apply it on a moment-by-moment basis. This means that in Ephesians 3, verse 20, I love this verse, um, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. What's that power that works in us? What is that power that's working in us? Are we talking just about a, a dead creed or just a... Uh, what verse is that? Ephesians 3.20. Uh, what is that power that's working in us? Well, in the Greek, it describes a word that talks about something that's dynamic and something that is... Uh, very powerful, and it's an overcoming power. What power is that? Is this a an emotional power? Is this a power that comes by, um, you know, self-motivation? Or is this something that we're doing that we create this power? No. The power that is in us is Jesus Christ, Colossians 1, verse 27. It's the Holy Spirit filling that when we go to the cross in the morning, we are basically saying, Lord, I am dying. Now resurrect me. Quicken me according to thy word. Quicken me according to thy, um, your thoughts about me in Psalm 139. Uh, learning how to, by the renewal of our mind in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, that we are not conformed to this world. I think if we're preaching a message to people that is anything other than the finished work, and we're telling people don't be conformed to the world, it's not fair because we're not giving them the equipment to do that. The equipment in our tactical victory is that we live in the renewing of our mind in Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. Every day, you know, like me, myself as well, you know, every day, like I have to be renewed in the spirit of my mind about what our mission is, what we're doing, what our goal is, what our prayer goals are. You know, I meet people during the week, I'm going out for coffee with them, we're talking with them, we're just fellowshipping. And every time I do that, I have to get like renewed in the spirit of my mind about what is God's thought about that person so that we can be part of God's tactical victory for people, right? We're not just people that are part of the system, wake up, go to work, grind it all out, come back, you know, do the thing we do for our family and then crash. We're not part of a machinery. We are part of God's tactical victory in people's lives. People that you and I rub shoulders with every day. These people need to know that Jesus Christ has won the tactical victory in their lives, and we need to show that to them through the finished work. And so our tactical victory is when I take the cross and the message of the finished work and apply that by faith in my life and say, you know, I don't feel holy right now. I don't feel amazing. I don't feel like an overcomer today. I'm kind of bugged out about this situation. I'm upset about this. This is something that's really on my mind. But by faith, we just have to say, you know what? I have the tactical victory over this situation. You know, something that, you know, we've talked about a few times in the last couple of months that really for me is such a fresh rhema is that not only do we have a finished work doctrine, a finished work position in Jesus Christ, we can look at our life from a finished work perspective, meaning that things that have not happened yet in my life or things that have not happened yet in my family, things that have not happened in my business, things that have not happened in my life 
are in God's eyes in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. They're already finished. They're completed. Uh, God has won the victory in that. Uh, the provision has come. The prayers have been answered. Uh, people have been saved. And the work that has not yet been done, that we are in the process of observing day by day, has already been done in God's eyes. And so that's a fin- I like to look at my life from that perspective that my life is not me against the, the, the world, you know, the rat race or, you know, um, my struggle. Who wrote that book? Was it Mein Kampf? What was that? Was that Hitler that wrote that or something? My struggle, my angst, my... And it's not only Hitler, but this is really a part of our society, isn't it? Like my unfinished struggle in my life, wake up and it's like, okay, God, I... I've just got, got to finish this. And do you know what I'm saying? Like how many of us have felt that way? We've felt like I've got to finish this. You know, this is unfinished and got to get out there and got to make it happen. And that's the, that's the mentality of Adam who is living under guilt, separated from God in the garden. Our mentality is it's finished. You know, it's finished. And I can trust God today. He's going to order my steps in some divine direction and, and, and God's going to bring me across the paths of people that, need, that, that are part of God's plan. Now, if I'm living in unbelief and I'm living in... My, and I'm not saying that this doesn't cause passivity. This causes uh, quiet, fervent expectation from God. And so instead of living in anxiety, I want to live in just fervent expectation from God. That God is good, like we heard earlier, somebody said in the testimony that God is good. And he's really good, and he's always good. And I think that God is good all the time. People say that a lot, but um, my wife's telling me to slow down. <laughs> okay. People say that, but it's more than just a slogan. It really is a biblical truth that God is good, and his grace makes us great. So i got to slow down. Let's take a sip of coffee here. Well, that's going to make me speak faster. Yeah. <laughs> That's our tactical victory, right? What's that power that works in us? That's the power of just this excitement, this, this filling of the Holy Spirit, this motivation. So before we talk about spiritual warfare, um, how many of you remember a teaching that we kind of grew up on that spiritual warfare is like a courtroom trial? Remember that? Like how... Um, how warfare is described in the Bible by words that are legal terms by nature. Though Satan has been defeated, he has been allowed to appeal his case. Now, what does that mean? It, well, Satan was not only defeated at the cross strategically, but he was defeated even before the world began. He was defeated when he, fit, when he fell from heaven. And Satan is cast down and he is making his case to God in an appeal at the Supreme Court of Heaven. And we, this is not really, I mean, if you've heard this taught before, it's not some, some fantasy teaching. It, the Bible wants us to understand that spiritual warfare is really something that's happening in, in a spiritual courtroom because we see these legal terms being used. And we see a classic example, Job, right? Job chapter 1. God is speaking to Satan. And I just think that Job, which is probably, scholars say, is the oldest book of the Bible. It was written before Genesis, maybe. And it, it, it addresses the oldest, the oldest 
concept and the oldest um, theme in mankind, and that's suffering, which is the oldest, most common theme. And in Job 1, verses 7 and 8, that Satan was allowed to appeal his sentence before he was sentenced to the lake of fire. And so this time, from the time that Adam was created and fell to the end of time, is Satan's time to really... uh, God is doing a lot of things, but one of the things he's allowing Satan to do is make his case. He's allowing Satan to give it his best shot to prosecute his case and to take people like Job and use them as witnesses against the nature and the grace and the character of God. And so um, the result here is is that God created a a race of people lower in rank than angels in Psalm 8, verse 5. And the various various words that we see that are legal terms are like accuser. We see um, adversary. And so we see this concept of a courtroom trial. And this is what we would refer to spiritual warfare. And in response, in response to our, in, in, you know, in rebuttal to Satan's appeal, God creates man. And actually, Satan wants to use man against God. He wants to use you and I against God. But really, God's plan of redemption and God's nature of grace is just so amazing that Everything that the devil tries to do in our life against God or circumstances in our life against us turns out for our good and turns out for a redemptive purpose. And so the whole aspect of the devil's strategy and warfare to make us like Job, like Job's wife said, just curse God and die. She basically said in a very short mission statement, what the devil was trying to do. Job, just curse God, get it over with, and die. That wasn't God's plan in Job's life. God's plan in Job's life was to bless Job twice as much. But first, something had to be removed from Job first. Because God can't bless us unless there are things that are first removed. Sometimes we get so so content with what, what we have in our life or in ministry or just in in our in whatever aspect of our life that that thing actually begins to block what god wants to give us it kind of takes up the space you know like how many of us have had you know with our kids they're holding really holding on to something they really want this you know they really want this thing and and uh, they're just obsessed with this and we're telling them look i have something better for you you just got to give me that thing first. So that you... A relationship, a girlfriend. Yeah. Yeah. I got something better for you. And, and so um, this whole courtroom struggle is what we call angelical conflict in spiritual warfare. So I, I, there's, a really great, um, there's a really great story that um, I've read. And it really, you know, how many of you have heard of General Sun Tzu? who was uh, Eduardo, I think, is a history guy, right? Mm-hmm. Loves history. This man was a man who, of course, was a Chinese general. And uh, in about 500 BC, um, he stated, victorious warriors win first. Then they go to war, and then they win. And so his whole strategy was is that 
in his, in his uh, brilliant understanding of warfare was that win first before you go to war. And this general developed nine principles of war that were so successful that they are still used today in strategic war profiles of world powers today. And so there's nine principles that um, he talks about. I'm going to talk about four of them today and the other five next week. Um, but first of all, before we get to that, there's two things that he bases these nine principles on. And um, number one, the, the most fundamental of Sun Tzu's principles for the conduct of war is that all warfare is based on deception. Okay? All warfare is based on deception. Now, I'm going to take these principles that he makes, and I think that he actually somehow gets these principles from, from the Bible. I think that somewhere along the line, we don't know, but these are, these are principles of warfare that we can see already described in the Word of God. And so I want to take these, and I want, to, I want to get verses that are pointing to these and how it applies for us so that we can wage a good warfare. Amen? So the first one, um, I haven't gotten to the second one yet, but the first one is warfare is based on deception. And how does that work? Well, pride blinds the, blinds the discernment of a person. And when we live in blindness, and when we live in pride, we're living in a blindness to discernment. We're not discerning what the devil is really doing in warfare. Um, God says, I am, right? I am that I am. And this has been the great um, the expression of God's nature and God's, you know, God's, God's message throughout the Bible. I am. But the devil says, I am not. I don't exist. And even in certain forms of the occult, they don't even worship any god. The devil says, I am not. And he's always hiding behind things. He's always trying to avoid discernment from a believer who is filled with the Holy Spirit and is thinking with God. Because, because the devil is proud, humility will always put him at a disadvantage. Okay? Let me explain what I mean. Like, when you and I humble ourselves, we're not functioning in the flesh. If you can imagine the devil has a radar system, you know, a big, on his desk, wherever he is, his, his office is, I don't know, there's a huge, huge radar system. And every time someone is functioning in the flesh or living in pride, there's a blip that comes up on that screen. And he can pinpoint, and he can, he can pinpoint people that are living in the flesh and living in pride. But when we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God at the cross at a daily basis, then what will happen is, is that we are, we are in stealth mode. The devil can't see us. And that's why you can see Herod, for example, saying, where is this king that I might worship him? You know, why did God have to come? God had to come in humility in the form of, the, uh, in the form of, a, of a baby. Because when he did that, the whole, you know, the whole satanic system who was also, the satanic system was, was also trying to keep up with the work of God through prophecy and trying to decipher things. But because the devil lives in ultimate pride, he cannot discern what God is doing. Isn't that amazing? That when you and I function in humility, the devil has no idea what's next in our life. When we live by faith, according to the power that works in us, the devil has no idea what's next in your life. And so he's always forced to be in reaction mode in the believer's life. And so 
this is uh, one of the this is one of the first key principles that this general brings up that war is based on deception that you and I can deceive the devil <laughs> that great give him some of his own medicine right deceive the devil how do we do that we just just live in humility and we just live in God's viewpoint about things humility is not thinking too high of myself thinking uh, humility is not thinking too low of myself and then we in greater grace like to add this third point grace humility is not even thinking about myself I'm not even in the picture it's Christ he is the center of of the whole thing and when we live in humility then we are actually in a very safe place by the way when because of Satan's pride when God decided that he would come in the form of a human being the devil was so shocked that, 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 that God would do that because the devil had no idea that God would go to that depth of humility that he would take on sinful flesh because the devil was so disgusted at people and their sin because we've got to remember the devil's also a very moral creature too very very moral um, but he's very perverted but very corrupt but he's also has a high moral capacity and so when God comes decides in eternity past to come in the form of of a baby in sinful flesh that just shocked the devil the devil can't even comprehend that because the devil in his pride thinks that God is the same as he is right the devil a proud person looks at everybody else and thinks that everybody else is just like them proud they just make that assumption you know and so when the devil looked at God his his enemy the devil had no idea that God would go that far to come in the form of a baby and in the form of sinful flesh. That's why it was such a shock to the, to the devil and to the satanic kingdom that Christ came in the flesh. And that's why it says in 1 John 4, it says that this is the spirit of Antichrist that denies that Jesus came in the flesh. And so when you and I live in humility, we're doing something that the devil has no idea what's coming next. And when we, when we say, you know what, I'm going to take the high road, I'm going to take... I'm going to take the road of Christ in this matter. I'm going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to fight for my rights. I'm not going to do the expected predictable thing if I live in the flesh. I'm going to humble myself and I'm going to express Christ, God's mind in the matter. And when we do that, the devil has no idea what's coming next. And the devil is deceived. And so the second principle is, is that, um, is to, um, not only to deceive, but to subdue the enemy without even fighting. And this is important because as a believer, how do we do that? How do we see our, the enemy subdued even before we go into war? That's very simple. This is our position in Jesus Christ. You know, you and I are in a position of great advantage. We're in an amazing position in our life. And because we're creatures of sight and sound and emotion and feeling, we get so overwhelmed with what we see and what we feel and what we hear. But when we begin our daily warfare from the position of great advantage, we're beginning it from the perspective of the finished work. Here's some verses that really point that out. Galatians 5 verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage, Galatians 5, verse 1. That's, our, that's where we start our day. Here's another verse, Ephesians 6, verse 11. 
Put on the whole armor of God that you might <coughs> be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Again, this is our position where we start even before we go into war. Ephesians 6, verse 13, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Uh, James 4, 7, Submit to God and, and the devil will flee, resist the devil and the devil will flee from you. Position, position of advantage. A lot of times we just go right into war without even understanding our position that we're from. That like, you know, like don't panic. First um, Peter chapter five verse nine: Resist the devil, or resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. And so, this brings us to the nine principles. I just want to do. I just want to do. Um, four of them this morning and then we'll close that you know what are the nine principles of effective warfare this is what general Tzu talks about and the first one is really and you know if this sounds like a military <laughs> it sounds like a military strategy it is you know it's um uh i just think it's amazing the principle of objective what's our objective before we go to war before we get involved with warfare before we even kind of understand what warfare is. What is our objective as a believer? Like, why am I engaging in this war? You know, why don't I just kick back and just live in a passive state and be overcome by the world? You know, what's the purpose of being in warfare? You know, what's the purpose of, of this? Well, it really is to understand that one objective. And my objective and our, our objective as a believer is Revelations chapter 4, verse 11. Worthy art thou our Lord and our God to receive glory and honor and power for thou didst create all things because of thy will they existed and were created our main objective in warfare which we are called to fight in is to glorify Jesus Christ in everything that we do and when we have this attitude I want to just see Christ glorified then at that moment everything that happens to us we are going to see that's going to it's going to turn out for good Okay, think of the warfare in Joseph's life, right? Joseph receives from God a rhema about the plan of God in Joseph's life, right? And then his brothers sell him. And this is like warfare. This is warfare against the plan of God that God was going to act out through Joseph to bless Jacob and the, and the whole nation of Israel. And this is warfare. And so what happens is that Joseph, in the end, understands that this is what that this that was, was used to work against Joseph is actually going to work together to save many lives. And so when we understand the objective that my goal is to glorify Jesus Christ, the objective in the believer's life is not to, is not to, um, is not to uh, collect blessings and to be blessed, you know? Like, you know? Like you can hear that in some churches the way they preach that, or some on TV or some places that the main objective for the Christian is blessing. You know, be blessed. As a matter of fact, life may be actually very, very hard. And as a result of that, there could be an incredible huge blessing for that, like Job. And understanding that our objective is really, I'm just here to glorify Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we're going to discover that all things work together for good in our life. And that's why I think when Job, when Job heard of that bad, tragic news where he lost all of his belongings, he lost his family, he lost everything, he lost his health. 
what did he do? He fell down on his feet and he worshipped. He fell down on his knees and worshipped. That's the objective. And we understand our objective. That just kind of sets the perspective for the whole warfare that we find ourselves in. Um, warfare happens in the air first. It always happens in the air first. And I was just reading some notes from a men's meeting from years ago. And uh, I just read that statement and I was just so um, blessed by that because before warfare can happen on the level of relationships and people and circumstances, it's first going to happen in the air. So as a Christian, we engage the enemy in the air first. We're not fighting flesh and blood in Ephesians 6.12. Many, many times, and I'm, I'm guilty of it, I think the, the primary battle for Christians is like flesh and blood, like, you know, flesh and blood. You know, I'm having this problem with these people, this and that. And yes, those are things that we face and even unsafe people face. But our battle is not flesh and blood. It's not flesh and blood. It's never flesh and blood. It's principalities, powers, spiritual wickedness in high places. We engage the devil in the air. And I think as a discerning Christian, what we do is, is we just kind of walk around with our antenna on, on full sensitivity. You know, walk wherever we, whatever we walk into, just discern the atmosphere. Learn how to, it's like a little exercise, you know, when you walk into HEB, just turn on your antenna. You know, when you're talking to somebody, turn on your antenna. And I'm not talking about entering into subjective mode, but just like say, God, speak to me about these circumstances. Speak to me about this environment that I'm living in. Speak to me about my neighbors. Speak to me about my church my you know my family and turn on the antennas because a lot of times um we will be able to engage the enemy in the atmosphere for example if the atmosphere if satan sends a fiery dart or what we call projections at you then how do we deal with that we deal with it by just lifting up our shield of faith and we just say you know a lot of times um people one of the first fronts of conflict is just when someone says something and that's why it's good to like maybe challenge each other when we say something that's not really from divine perspective not like as spiritual police where we just like shoot down everything that everyone says but like we just say hey you know what like maybe we just kind of deflect or redirect that statement in a direction where like uh what is god's mind about it like you know let me give you an example. Let me think of something. Um, when we want to say the obvious, it seems like, okay, no one's talking about the obvious. Instead of talking about the obvious, let's talk about what God's mind is, you know? Like from the perspective of God's mind, from the Word of God. And we engage the devil in the air. We engage our enemy in the air. We engage the devil in that unseen part. We engage the devil... Um, the believer, you and I, no matter what you think about your spiritual maturity, you are equipped, you and I are equipped with spiritual antennas where we can discern things. Have you ever discerned things about people and, and, and thought about how can I communicate that in an edifying way to that person? And then when you do, you can just see the tactical victory of God in their life where they get delivered from something or they're like, yeah, you're right. You know, let's, you know that's God's mind in the matter. You know, so objective, having our, the right objective is to really glorify Jesus Christ. The second principle 
of, of General Sue's principles of the art of war is offensive action. And offensive action is, only, is the only means by which a decision is gained in warfare. You know, Warfare is not won by defensive action. It's won by offense. And when you watch a football game, you know, you can't win a chess game by living by only playing defense. Maybe you can some unique way, but but when you watch football, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but can you win a football game if you have a stronger offense than a defense? I think you can, right? It's tough, right? If it's the Texans, sometimes I'll ask <laughs> They say defense wins games, offense sells tickets. Okay. That's what they say, but it, that doesn't apply here. Okay. <laughs> this is for spiritual warfare, this is. Yeah, when we live with offense, that's how we win wars. And when successful, the offense brings victory, whereas defense can only, defense can only avoid defeat. That's what, that's, that's what, um, that's what we can see from, per, from this perspective of, of warfare. Therefore, the only effective way to win a war is to act on offensive. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.12, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And, and you made the confession in the presence of many witnesses. Uh, Paul didn't say to Timothy, go fight the devil. He said, fight the good fight of faith, which means to walk in faith in the spirit of the word. Our call is not to go fight the devil because that battle's already been won strategically and tactically. The devil's already defeated. It's not something that we have to go try to do to ourselves. Uh, fight the good fight. The fight that you and I are called to go into is to, if I'm walking in faith or am I walking in the flesh, right? That's really what it boils down to is like if I'm taking up my cross daily, then I'm going to be walking in faith. And um, my flesh, when it pops up, I'm not going to live in condemnation. I'm just going to deal with it. Just, okay, God, that's crucified. That's a conversation that's already been that's already ended. So the second principle of warfare is offensive action. And, um, and that just means that we, we take the fight to thinking in faith and not just living in defense. You know, living in defense only all the time, um, it may avoid defeat, but we're never going to gain ground living in defense. We're never going to make any ground and so Ephesians 6, verse 12, when we take up that shield of faith, um, that's how we begin to. And that sword of the Spirit is really, when we begin to wield the Word of God by faith in our life, and in Romans chapter 10, the Word of God is nigh unto us, even in our mouth. The Word of the position, the most advantageous position of the Word of God in our life is in our mouth. When we just confess the Word of God, when we confess His mind about things, and maybe we don't know the chapter and verse, but maybe we do know principles. Um, the, third, the third thing is, because we're getting a little long here, I just want to finish this up. The third thing is uh, the principle of mass. Okay, mass. You know, the, the sheer mass of force in an army that, that, can actually, uh, that can actually gain the victory and gain the advantage on the, on the, on the, on the battlefield. Third principle is mass. And this term mass is used 
in the military to define combat power, the concept of mass includes the numbers, the weapons, the tactical skill, the fighting ability, the determination, the discipline, the morale, the leadership, which all part of the power in the military principle of mass. So when we, and very simply this for us, in other words, for us, um, mass just takes into account all the equipment that we as soldiers in Christ have. Like what are we equipped with? What is the mass total of what we have? And that is, like that's reflected in 2 Samuel 22 verse 40 where David said, Thou hast girded me with strength for battle. You have girded me. 2 Samuel 22 verse 40. I just want to make a comment here about Ephesians chapter 6 in this chapter here. Is that Ephesians 6, this chapter is one of the greatest chapters of warfare, isn't it, in the Bible? But what's the context of chapter 6? Chapter 6 is in the context. It's buried in the... Chapter 6 is buried in the book of Ephesians. And what the context of the book of Ephesians is what? What's the theme of the book of Ephesians? One of the major themes of the book of Ephesians. The body of Christ, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And so, I think sometimes Christians read Ephesians chapter 6 without understanding the context that I am not properly equipped for spiritual warfare in my life unless I'm in the body of Christ. Unless I'm functioning in the body of Christ. I'm going to find my equipment in the body of Christ. I'm going to find my equipment in these little types of meetings here where where we're equipped for the rest of the week or midweek if we can do it. We come out and we just get equipped, you know, get encouraged because Wednesday, you know, two days of just getting beat up by the atmosphere. Wednesday comes and we can just get encouraged at the, at the, at the study. And so this book, this principle of mass is described in the experiential and accountability of the equipping of the saints for warfare. Meaning in Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16, Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, these are the verses about all the equipment and all the gifts that God gives the body of Christ to equip you and I, right, for warfare. I mean, that's why the devil wants to get people out of a body. That's why the devil wants to get people disconnected from a body. You know, whenever I'm disconnected from the body of Christ, I may have great theology, I might have a great prayer life, I might have, you know, an amazing walk with God, but I am not equipped to face major warfare because I'm alone, you know? I'm not part of the mass, the principle of mass. You know, um, some churches really harp on church attendance, right? You know, they really harp on that. But the the point being is, is that what's the point behind that? The point behind that is, is that that you and I need to be in a body. And this is what our vision here in Texas is, is really that we would see God just create a body here, a greater grace body of people where we could just be equipped in fellowship and in joy and like we did at the beginning, expressing prayer requests and praise reports and getting equipped by the word of God in the body of Christ to face these battles that we face. Because otherwise... You know, you're going to notice that you, you and I, we struggle the most when we're not in a body of people. Our toughest weeks are those weeks that we're just not in fellowship. You know what I'm saying? And it's more about, it's more than just church attendance. It's like, like be a, we've been created for relationship. And that's every part of our soul has been created for relationship. And then the fourth principle and the last one for today is going to be um, the economy of force. 
So when we understand mass, and I don't want to sound too technical, but it is kind of a technical topic. When we think about the, the force of mass or the principle of mass, this brings us to the next point, which is really the next logical point, which is force, the sheer force of a mass of people. I mean, you could have like really, and this is the story, I think, uh, historically in the Roman Empire where the barbarians were coming in and they, they were at such huge hordes of them. They, some of them weren't even great fighters, but they're short, they're just, they're, they're just, they're just, uh, they're, um, their mass itself overwhelmed armies. And this is the economy of force. The economy of force is the application of this principle of mass. Economy of force is the means by which military mass is deployed or arranged in a main effort. Okay? In other words, this falls under the principle of preparation and perspective. And I'm going to just make a comment about this, is that when you have a group of people that are, that are rallying around a principle that is so supernatural and that is so incredible and that is so powerful, then there is a lot of force behind that, behind that group of people. When you have a body of people that understand this one principle, and this is 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 through 17, that we don't know each other after the flesh. When we are persuaded about this, when we understand this principle, that we are not knowing each other after the flesh, then there is something in that group of people that is very, very forceful and very, very powerful. And this is the economy of force. When And I'll just read these verses here to you in 2 Corinthians 5, 14. For the love of Christ compels us and that's force right there love the, com- the compelling force of love because we thus we judge thus that if one died for all then all died and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and rose again therefore from now on we regard no one according to the flesh even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Meaning that at one point, the disciples knew Jesus in the flesh, but now they don't know him because he died and rose again and was on the right hand of the Father. In verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, old, all things have become new. Do you know why Christianity has grown over the ages and other religions have grown and then fallen? Because Christianity is the only religion that has this principle that we don't know people after the flesh. We know them through the cross. Uh, You can see, I saw a little video and I posted on Facebook, the expansion and the falling of religions over over, over over the centuries, over the millennia. And you just see Christianity grow. And why is that? Because there, there is that sheer force. That's the sheer force of the grace of God, that we are new creations in Christ. And that's the only answer that we can give to people for the problem of sin and destruction and the, the crisis in the world, that you are no longer your sin. You have the strategic victory. You have the tactical victory in Christ, that strategically we are a new person in Christ. 
that the cross has crucified all the reasons why God would reject us. And we have this tactical victory, which is just a life of faith, that our faith overcomes the world. And when we live in this tactical victory, when we live in this kind of thinking that we don't know each other here, you know, after the flesh, because after a while we're going to know each other after the flesh, you're going to say, oh, wait a minute, he's like that or she's like that. But so you know what, though? That's going to the cross because we only want to know each other after, you know, in Christ. A lot of churches today, a lot of churches today may not have this understanding. And so the pastor may know his entire congregation after the flesh, you know, and all of his messages may be preached, may be directed towards the flesh of the people in the church, you know, because that doesn't help anything. You know, preaching at the flesh of people doesn't change anything. Maybe if you have a very cooperative group of people, maybe they're going to all just modify their behavior and just become like a, you know, like a cult or something. I don't know. But the, the force of a body of Christ that knows each other, who they are in Christ, and as a new creation, is just unstoppable. And this is just the sheer force of the grace of God. And I'll just finish with this, that, that these are the victories that we have in Christ. And um, this is how we can really start our week, and this is really how we can have that advantage of position that when we understand who we are and that what has been done, um, we can just really see God move in such a mighty way, in such a powerful way. Amen? Amen. So do we have any comments or questions? I know that...